This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. You're listening to Quick to Listen. Each week, we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Caleb Lindgren, Associate Editor at Christianity Today, and I'm sitting in for Morgan Lee today, who's attending a few conferences on the East Coast, and I'm joined by Mark Galley, our Editor-in-Chief. How are you doing, Mark? Good. I'm excited to do this podcast with you. Yeah, it's fun to sit in. Um, We'll see how Morgan thinks we did. Exactly. Caleb and I are the two theology nerds on the hallway, so... Guess what this topic's going to be about today? Yep, we're taking over. We're taking over. The nerds are taking over. Yeah, so uh, because I'm running the show today, we're going to get real nerdy. We're going to go beyond hashtags and hot takes and major cultural events to discuss a major intellectual trend that I've noticed among Christian thinkers recently. From Tim Keller to Russell Moore to Rod Dreher, it seems like a lot of evangelical thought leaders and quite a few academics these days are fond of a guy named Charles Taylor, and in particular, a book he wrote titled A Secular Age. Taylor is a Canadian philosopher from Montreal, Quebec. He's known for his work in political philosophy and philosophy of social science. But this book, A Secular Age, which is more philosophy of religion and culture, is a dense argument against the secularization thesis posed by guys like Max Weber and others. And that has particularly captured the evangelical intellectual imagination recently. To help us unpack Taylor's popularity among uh, Christian intellectuals especially. We uh, are joined today by Colin Hansen. Colin is executive director of the Gospel Coalition. He's the author of Young, Restless, Reformed, A Journalist's Journey with the New Calvinist, which he wrote while he worked for Christianity Today, no doubt the most formative experience of his life. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> his most recent work, written with Jeff Robinson, is 12 Faithful Men, Portraits of Courageous Endurance in Pastoral Ministry. And he's on the show today because of a book he edited entitled Our Secular Age, Ten Years of Reading and Applying Charles Taylor. So welcome, Colin. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm excited for this. Yeah, yeah, we're excited too. Before we get into the discussion, though, um, I want to thank all of our subscribers who support this podcast and Christianity Today. We really appreciate your support, which makes this show and everything we do here possible, so thank you. If you don't already subscribe and you'd like to do so, you can visit orderct.com slash quick to listen. If you subscribe today, you'll receive our latest issue of CT Magazine, our July-August issue, and in it you'll find fascinating and in-depth articles on all sorts of topics. And uh, Mark, what was one article from the July-August issue that stuck out to you? Well, the one that's the most meaningful today is uh, it's a book review called Want to Share the Gospel Effectively? Always Ask About the Tattoo. And it's basically a, a book review, a book that helps people like me more casually and frequently or regularly and sensitively share the gospel. I just had an encounter with a good friend this week who, who said for the first time in his life he's experiencing the fear of death. And of course, it was a wonderful opportunity to talk about things more deeply, uh, and I fumbled it completely. <laughs> I can relate to that. So I need a, a meaning I just didn't go anywhere with that, with his admission. I, you know, you don't have to start pounding people with the forced spiritual laws at that point, but you can actually use that as an entree to start talking about larger things, and I just let it pass. So I need books like this. I assume our readers do, and I'm really glad we have book reviews like this in our magazine. Yeah, no, that was a great one. And one of the things I was most impressed with, with uh, the book itself and the review as well, which highlighted it, 
was the, uh, the centrality of narrative, um, how telling stories and asking other people to tell their stories is really a good opportunity to get into that. Um, and that's one of the things that I don't do very well. I want to get to the ideas. I want to have an argument. Right, right. And yeah, Mike Michelotos, the author of the book, was saying, no, no, talk about stories. Get people to tell you what they're, what they're thinking and feeling and why. Um, and I thought that was great advice. So again, if you're interested in that article or any of the other ones in our July-August issue or you just want to support us, go ahead and subscribe. Um, visit orderct.com slash quick to listen. Yeah, so let's get into the topic for today and do a quick gut check, which is interesting because a lot of times we're talking about major cultural events, and here we've got kind of this more uh, intellectual trend. So, Mark, how did you first come across Charles Taylor? What did you think about him to begin with, and what do you think about this yeah, trend? Yeah, I'm guessing I came across it uh, either in a book review or someone who was making reference to him. Hearing the book summarized, it was absolutely fascinating to me, and I was anxious to get a hold of the book and to read it. Uh, I have since tried on three different occasions to read it. <laughs> Once uh, audibly on audible.com. Oh, interesting. Oh. It's usually like the silver bullet. <laughs> yeah. And then once with, uh, with a text in front of me. And he's not difficult to understand, but it is a long book that does make demands on the reader. And I think many of our listeners are like me. They've read either very little or only read reviews of him. And I, just, I do nonetheless think that he's an important intellectual source uh, for Christians to ponder, and I'm really glad we have an opportunity to do it on this podcast. One of the reasons why I was curious about this topic is because as an editor, you get a lot of a lot of pitches for ideas and articles, and I have been surprised for the last couple of years how often Charles Taylor gets mentioned in pitches and articles that come to me, and um, pitches and articles that I read, um, even across you know the internet and across kind of thought journalism. And I remember first reading Charles Taylor when I was in um, undergrad studying philosophy, and we were reading a different book of Charles Taylor's, The Sources of the Self. And I remember being very intimidated because the philosophy professor who was teaching, uh, Mark Talbot at Wheaton College, was very, he liked to take things very slow and just diagram everything. So I thought that's what Charles Taylor was. And in some ways he is. He's very particular and precise. But I think most readers are similar to me, even though I have read him, I don't really know what he thinks. And he's just a name that sort of gets trotted out in these particular yeah. moments. So yeah. I really want to get into that and hopefully give a better idea of what and who he is. So uh, Colin, to bring you into the discussion at this point, you recently edited this book, um, sort of looking at reading Charles Taylor over the last 10 years since A Secular Age came out, because your book was published in 2017. So since you've done all of that and looked at a lot of other people thinking about Charles Taylor, what are the big ideas that you think Christian thinkers are latching on to? A lot of different directions you could go with that, Caleb, but I think you can narrow it down to at least three of them that would be especially relevant for most of the listeners here. The first of them is pretty simple and it's obvious, and yet it's kind of ironic how often we don't talk about it. The basic point is all faith today is fraught with doubt. All of us come to faith through some kind of experience or disposition or default expectation of doubt. Our faith is constantly challenged. Um, and the basic issue that our secular age is trying to get at is why 500 years ago did everybody just assume there was a God? And now everybody today basically assumes that there's not a God. Now, of course, this is more likely to be in the modern industrialized West that he's speaking of here. But even those of us who are Christians, even conservative or evangelical Christians, still have to fight for faith 
through doubt because our culture simply doesn't share those assumptions. So that's the first big point uh, that Taylor uh, addresses in a lot of his work, but uh, particularly in this culminating volume of A Secular Age. The second one is what he terms the age of authenticity. Uh, You can see this idea addressed elsewhere, especially through people like Robert Bella, Habits of the Heart, in his idea about expressive individualism. But the age of authenticity is this understanding where the self has become the center of all things. God is not the center of all things anymore. The family is not the center of all things. The nation is not the center of all things. These are all different progressions that have been made in the last 500 years, but now it is the self that is the center of all things. And then Taylor goes on to explain a phenomenon. He Essentially, he names something we all see. He calls it the subtraction story. And that is the process by which all of us come to our identity as a self through distancing ourselves from the authorities, specifically the religious and communal and familial authorities that we grow up with. So that's how we become the self. We put off, we subtract that foolishness. But the the last point I wanted to mention is what he terms disenchantment. And that means that there are no more fairies. We don't believe in fairies anymore. We don't believe in trolls anymore. And we don't believe anymore in gods who rise from the dead. Um, there's just a sense in which the spiritual has been cut off. What he what he describes there as the buffered self means we're simply unaffected. We're untouched by the spiritual. It goes on another of these Taylorisms that you'll hear bandied about uh, would be the imminent frame, meaning that you know, the only the tangible, only what we can see and identify is what truly matters. And no longer do we have a fundamental orientation toward the transcendent. So just to give you an example of this, for almost all of human history, people would have interpreted the weather. We predict the weather. Okay. So no longer is there any expectation that we have done something wrong because it's raining too much, or we've done something wrong because it's raining too little. Or, you know, we don't go looking for those kind of scapegoats. We go looking for climatological models there. So we no longer interpret our everyday events through the transcendent lens, but instead we live inside this imminent frame. So that's a a little bit of a quick overview of a lot of the major ideas that emerge from Taylor. Just recently, I've been, we're reading uh, for a theology group I'm a part of, Maximus the Confessor, in which he uh, talks about the fact that God's presence and love is kind of permeates all creation. And that uh, and I'm reading another book which talks about listening to the created order to find the love and grace and mercy of God in, with, and under it, sort of, so to speak, without becoming pantheist, but just recognizing creation vibrates with, with the grace of God at some level, and we don't think about the world that way. <laughs> Poets do, maybe still, but most of us think, oh, that's a tree, and it grew out of these, this biological process. It's, a, it's an object that has no, doesn't point to anything else but itself, and I just think that's really typical of our age, and that's why it's so difficult for I think Christians today, well, for me anyway, to really enter into uh, a natural setting and then, in a sense, let the glory of God speak to me through that. Well, just think about this. Choice. Choice is essential to our identity and to our culture. The, the maximization of choice is our fundamental pursuit, that we can go all the way through different like sexual options to the grocery store there, to our vocations all kinds of different things. 
most people in human history, and by which I mean 99.9% of people in human history, didn't have choice. There, there were no options. You, you, didn't, you didn't have choice in who you were going to marry. You did not have choice in where you were going to live. You did not have choice in terms of what your vocation was going to be. You did not have choice in terms of what your religion was going to be. All of these things were going to be inherited. Your identity was inherited. Today, your identity is self-crafted. And now, through any number of different, especially uh, sexual trends, that identity is intended to be crafted at very young ages. We're talking like single-digit ages there, where you're, you're beginning to craft your, your singular identity as a person, apart from any inheritance, the you-do-you motif there. That is a radical shift. Yeah, apart from any, uh, any inheritance or authority. Oh, goodness, absolutely. So, you know, a lot of what my thinking and my writing has been trying to come to terms with is what it's like to live in an era that instinctively suspects every single authority, the family authority, the, the communal authority, the religious authority, and as we can obviously see, the political authority as well. Oh, that's a, those are some big issues to be wrestling with. So often people like the way that he frames the question per se. They're like, hey, he helps me come up with categories that help me understand how to talk about this shift that we've been talking about. You mentioned Taylorisms, and sometimes these things get mentioned. You were mentioning the imminent frame. Another one that I hear occasionally is social imaginaries. So they talk about there's a different way of imagining, which is sort of more than just like fanciful thinking, but it's also like a way of understanding and interpreting the world around us. And there's this category of social imaginary, which is sort of a weird phrase that we don't think about, um, but that gets a lot of, it seems like it can do a lot of work for some of these folks. A lot of what Taylor does is he'll take something that is rather obvious, but that nobody has named before or that nobody's described. It's almost like somebody who gives you language to understand the air that you breathe or somebody like, um, uh, like David Foster Wallace, who talked so much about the fish in the water. It's the, you know, one fish that you, know, you don't even realize what water is because you can't survive without it. So the social imaginary is that which is so obvious that nobody needs to talk about it. Uh, a different way of describing a similar dynamic would be a plausibility structure. And that comes up a lot in apologetics, especially for Christians. Because a lot of things that we talk about as Christians just do not comport with the social imaginary. They do not fit into plausibility structures. Just to give an example of this today, if you are to push back against, for example, same-sex marriage, you, you have to understand there is simply no social imaginary that allows people to reach that conclusion apart from some kind of revealed authority. Now, there's all kinds of appeals to natural law and whatnot. But here's where it goes wrong, according to Taylor in his descriptions of, of social imaginaries. It goes wrong because the essence of love is that which is freely chosen, voluntarily maintained, and comes solely from within an expressivist mindset. This is something that brings me fulfillment. Okay, so if you were to come and to say, thus saith the Lord, same-sex marriage is not okay. It doesn't make sense because that doesn't fit with their definition of love. It doesn't fit with their definition of expressivism. It doesn't fit with their understanding of happiness in this world. Happiness means 
just loving whomever or whatever makes you feel a certain way. It just makes it tremendously difficult for us teaching because sometimes here's what happens in our churches. You might have a pastor who's been educated in um, a social imaginary from, you know, the 1950s or 1960s or something like that. But then they're preaching to youth in their congregation who have an entirely different world that even if they've lived in the same geography, they might even be related to one another in the same family. They might even be catechized roughly the same. But because one of them has come up in a certain social imaginary that simply with, with, say, for example, an expressivist mindset, and the other comes from one with a residual authority structure, well, they might be in the same church, but they're not speaking the same language. And that's where the social imaginary comes into play. So another really key concept from Taylor. So that example suggests that this social imaginary shift it's not just 500 years old, but it also has to do with your social location. And it can, it can be happen within a generation. It can. So this is an evolving process. One of the things that we did in our secular age is we were trying to assess this volume from 10 years later. You have to realize there were no iPhones when he came out with this book. There, were, there was no Twitter. There was none of this. All of the trends that Taylor is talking about are significantly exacerbated through these technological developments. And in fact, one of the things that Carl Truman criticizes Taylor for in our volume, Our Secular Age, is not properly accounting for the technological components. He sticks mostly in the theological, the sociological, and the historical, does not really kind of jump into those issues of technology. I've used this illustration a number of times before. A shorthand way of describing the situation that Taylor is, is laying out for us is that in previous generations, if you, you're, you're fundamentally oriented toward the sky, okay? So your relief, your salvation, your hope, your fears, they come to the sky, whether it's in a biblical sense, you look to the mountains, who's going to be coming over the mountains to attack or to relieve you in a siege, but also just more simply the rain or the winds or the storms, you're looking to the sky. Well, then you kind of, you, you lower that plane, and then if you go in a shorthand through the Enlightenment period, you're more looking to your fellow man. You're more looking to look what we can accomplish together. So you're on this more horizontal plane there. But we're now just in the early stages of another shift. And that shift is now we all look down. We all look down into our phones. And the phone is this portal to a world that revolves entirely around the self. We don't look to the sky anymore. Now we look down. We don't look to our fellow man anymore. We look to this carefully cultivated persona that we have inside of this little phone, which is our window then to the world. That then, Mark, to your point, the social imaginary, imagine that shift just in terms of a few generations with the technological introduction then of the iPhone. How then do you preach and teach a gospel of a God of authority, of a word of authority to people who understand themselves to be the authority? Boy, that's difficult. So it sounds like one of the things that Taylor does for us as Christians is gives us categories to understand some of these shifts and also ways to engage them. And I wonder, did Christians pick up on that within Taylor's work right from the get-go? His book, A Secular Age, was published in 2007. And did it experience the sort of popularity within Christian circles from its publication, or did it take a few years to catch on? Did it take some popularizers to come along and sort of introduce us to Taylor? Yeah, so here is where I get to thank you guys and my friends at Christianity Today. Um, I do think places like Christianity Today were quick to pick up on these things, because after all, the reason I knew about Taylor in the first place 
is because I was a CT Book Award judge uh, when the book came out, and it was one of the nominees for that category. So I was aware of it, but it was one of those doorstop books for me, at least early on. It took a while for me to truly understand the significance. And I, and I, and I, I needed some other interpreters to be able to come along the way to help me out on that. So you have Jamie Smith, uh, his How Not to Be Secular, come out in 2014. Uh, he begins that interpretive work. And I think a lot of people clued into Taylor uh, with that. Another landmark moment, at least for me, would be Tim Keller's Making Sense of God. Tim and I had talked about that book a, a fair bit before it came out. His Reason for God came out in 2008. That was his first best-selling book. And that's an apologetic work, a very successful apologetic work. But I think it was as soon as about 2012 or 2013, maybe even sooner, uh, that Keller began to realize that that book was outdated, in particular because the sexual issues, which I think were like the number three issue that he addressed in Reason for God, had vaulted to the number one. But actually, the problem was deeper. He found there was not even, to borrow the phrase again, a social imaginary that he could relate to from that Christian perspective and people he was talking to. He realized he had to go further and deeper to be able to enter into an entirely different perspective. And that's what Making Sense for God does. It's like a prequel to Reason for God. The reason I'm bringing it up here is because Taylor is one of the most significant voices in helping him to articulate that. So when I talk to people about uh, Taylor and, uh, and about apologetics and preaching and evangelism and things like that, I'll usually say books like Reason for God are still fairly effective for a lot of different people, if nothing else, because they encourage Christians. A lot of apologetics books are actually for Christians. They're not for, they're not for doubters. Why is that? Because, like Taylor says, all of us doubt in, you know, to get to faith now. But I continue to recommend Making Sense of God as a really good introduction to a lot of these things, especially for people who are doing campus evangelism or editors or church leaders or people like that. So, yeah, there, there was a little bit slow um, uh, appropriation of Taylor there which is in some sense not surprising, considering it's a long book, he's Canadian, he's Catholic, he's a philosopher, but there have been some people, including Christian today, early on, who were clued into the significance of this work. Yeah, I mean, it is a 900-page tome. That thing is thick and dense, so it's tough sledding, as they say. You mentioned uh, some of the things about his background, Canadian, Catholic. I wanted to clue on the Catholic thing real quickly. Are there? What, how do you see the influences of his Catholicism in this thinking he's doing? So that was one of the major uh, contributions to our book, Our Secular Age. You have contributions there from Michael Horton and Carl Truman, a couple Reformed uh, Presbyterian theologians. And both of them are fairly critical of Taylor precisely on these grounds of the ways that his Catholicism uh, affects a lot of his thought. Some of the divide in terms of responses, evangelical responses to Taylor have have something to do with the role of ritual and the role of kind of social memory, collective memory in this work. So I would say that some people who are really more familiar with Jamie Smith's work and more uh, kind of aligned with him, maybe in the higher church traditions or Anglicanism and things like that, they're probably going to resonate a lot with Taylor on certain aspects because he's deeply, deeply critical as a Catholic of the departure from the ritualism of the Middle Ages. Uh, this is a fairly popular Roman Catholic critique of Protestants, but he tends to say things like, you know, the, you know, the, the, the imminent frame was not as much of a problem 
when everything was more of a smells and bells kind of deal. There wasn't all this attention giving to the thought. This was more of a collective type action, a kind of feast and famine dynamic. Uh, there was not this expectation that people would try to live this fulsome Christian intellectually integrated life. He says that actually worked well in terms of fostering an enchanted world, the world, like I was saying before, of fairies and trolls and gods who rise from the dead. I, as a Protestant, have a pretty big problem with that. And Horton uh, explains why. So, for example, as Taylor, as a Catholic, tries to blame John Calvin for a lot of the problems that have led to secularism. Uh-oh, Michael better Horton, not do that with Horton. I know, no, no, <laughs> not going to do that with Horton. He comes back and he says, so let me get this straight. John Calvin is the problem here, because John Calvin had the audacity to advocate for a thoroughly integrated life in terms of our thoughts and our actions, all of it, as Calvin would say, before God. But the problem of, of secularism was not with, say, the Council of Constance, that had to import prostitutes from all around Europe to be able to service the bishops of the church meeting. <laughs> so again, it's just this classic Catholic-Protestant discussion there. Is secularism more of a response to the corruption of the church, or actually of the church making too high a demands for people who are not fundamentally thinking people, but ritualistic people? Quick note here, the current case of Ireland is a fascinating test case of a culture that rapidly descended into secularism. Just look at the abortion vote and many others. They're now voting on blasphemy, all kinds of different things. The trigger issue, though, was corruption in the church. However, built on a foundation of decades and centuries and centuries of a broader European capitulation to other forms of philosophical secularism. So just a fascinating dynamic there. But yes, Taylor is definitely a Catholic, and yes, our volume does uh, dig into some of those critiques. We always like to give our guests the, uh, the, the, the strongest and final word, but I'll, I'll just put in a minority report here. As an Anglican, <laughs> that part of the work makes, it, Mark. makes some sense it, Mark. to me, to people like me, but this is your show, uh, so I want no, you to... No, that's, that's, why, that's why I said, Mark, if, you, if you're more inclined toward Smith's work, much of which I really appreciate, and Smith as I said earlier, as a key interpreter and popularizing translator in some ways of Taylor to the Protestant world, the evangelical world. But I would again say that um, if, if that's where you're naturally inclined, you're probably going to be more in agreement there, um, no doubt. Yeah, there's been a lot of intellectual bashing of how the Reformation was the most horrible thing that happened in Western history, which uh, some of it, there, there's some good cases to be made for any reform movement that enters the world, it's going to have some uh, unintended consequences that none of us think are good. But I think it's it's just it's overwrought a lot of the times uh, without understanding the blessing that uh, something like the Reformation brings us. And I will even say, as an, an Anglican who wrote a book on how liturgy can be a powerful way to be discipled into Christ, I think the the, the pro liturgy uh, ritual people overstate the case by saying it can. Uh, it can really make a difference, and we should readapt it because it it has a way of working on us without us thinking about it. But as you've noted, Colin, I mean, when we see many, many instances of ritualism gone bad, it doesn't necessarily automatically shape people. It can make people, it can make whole institutions, whole movements completely uh, indifferent to the corrupted state of their being. So it's not a be-all and end-all for sure. This 
episode of Quick to Listen is brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible, a translation that is both faithful to the original languages and really easy to read. Today we are talking with Michael Card. He is a singer and songwriter, and he served as a stylist for the Christian Standard Bible. Hey, Mike, how are you? I'm doing good, Maury. All right, so Mike, tell us about the translating process. Was there something about it that was like surprisingly hard to you? I think just the quantity is hard. I mean, the the Bible's a big book, and maintaining that intense a focus for for that long a period of time was difficult. And again, we weren't doing an all new translation when we were updating the HCSB, which was a good translation, but uh, a lot of people had said it read kind of like a rough draft. And so that was one of the things we we're trying to prove upon. And I think you'll find that over HCSB, uh, CSB really has a, has a better consistency and a better flow to it. You can learn more about the Christian Standard Bible at csbible.com slash ct. This episode is brought to you by Preaching Today. Are you tired of chasing down quality sermon illustrations? Need fresh ideas for helping your message connect? Each week, Preaching Today adds fresh content to our database of over 14,000 editor-screened illustrations. Quickly find the right story that will bring your message to life and help your people move closer to God. Get started today at preachingtoday.com. So we've mentioned that sort of focus on ritual, focus on that sort of affective side that Taylor as a Catholic wants to bring out. Are there other aspects of his thought that we as conservative Christians ought to be wary of? That's the main issue there. I think, though, what I love about working with Taylor is that just as evangelicals in general, we're appropriators. You know, like that's kind of our whole identity there. We're always grabbing from here and we're grabbing from there. And it doesn't mean we buy everything wholesale. I mean, I have to do that as a Baptist with Luther and Calvin, even as somebody who admires them greatly. It's just kind of typical. Evangelicalism at its core is this amalgamation of these different factors, this Puritanism and this Scottish Presbyterianism, as, as well as this like continental pietism. It's, it's just, it's kind of a, a hodgepodge there. And so there's a lot that we can really appropriate from from Taylor. It's just the distinguishing factors that I want to identify is that I would agree that ritual and the loss of ritual and collective memory and historical memory is a major problem in our churches. One thing that I do just in a small way uh, to try to appropriate Taylor's insights is just to use a hymnal in our family devotions with my kids, because at church they don't learn any songs that are older than you know, 10 years old <laughs> or five years old. I mean, occasionally they'll jump into to some hymns, but they're still set to a contemporary uh, type band. So that's just one thing to try to say, because I actually do think I agree with, with Smith and with Mike Cosper and many others who have, you know, used Taylor to great effect to say ritual is a really significant component here. There's just a difference between a ritual and then a ritualism. And the same way that I would talk about things to be wary about, you can come to think that the thinking life is somehow insignificant or is somehow deeply problematic for Christians um, if you overread Taylor. Um, And then also you can jump into things like the, the concerns that I was sharing earlier about expressive individualism and the age of authenticity. But the fact is, one reason evangelicalism is actually popular 
is because it does engage people with the emotions. It does engage people in terms of their aspirations and their loves. So I do think there's a difference between being expressive um, and expressivism, uh, which can cause significant problems. So ritual is good, but ritualism can get into trouble. Expressing ourselves is good and perfectly human, but expressivism gets us into trouble. Depending on which angle you're going to come at him from, you're going to reach uh, varying levels of agreement <laughs> with him and appropriation. But like I said, as evangelicals, I think that's pretty typical. Yeah, and I think we can we can use a lot of his insights about the way the, the the social imaginary of our current culture and all its dimensions as an entree to to in a sense there are gospel parallels that we can help people move into the Christian faith and of course the life of the discipleship is to help them move beyond that. So the classic experience is evangelical is being born again. It's a very uh, emotional or uh, something centered around the self, God loves me, my eternal life is taken care of, I, my sins are forgiven. It's very much about the self uh, at the very beginning. Uh, but hopefully Christian discipleship would help us realize it's kind of much bigger than that. But it's not a bad entree. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's exactly what I mean when I was talking earlier it's on the subtraction story. When I first read that in Taylor, I just immediately connected with that because I began to understand all of us have these subtraction stories, but they look totally different from each other. So think of the kid who grows up in a Christian home, and this is an actual example that I lead um, the book Our Secular Age with. It's a, it's a fundamentalist home, and the young teenage boy is reading one of the, I think it was Richard Dawkins, reading one of the new atheists. He actually doesn't really understand any of it. He just wants to get a reaction. He's trying to provoke the authorities by differentiating himself. He's subtracting the immaturity of his upbringing to transcend it in his creation of the self. Okay, that's one way you can do that with the new atheist. But Mark, you just mentioned another one. Being born again can be a form of the subtraction story. And that's one reason why becoming born again looks almost the same in practical, expressive language as coming out of the closet. Wait a minute. Those, you know, those seem very different, right? Well, but actually both of them are being true to your actual self in your own understanding, at least, in differentiating yourself from these authorities as you finally come to terms with who you've always been made to be. But again, it, it, it's, it's not an inherited, that's, I keep going back to that from the very beginning, it's not an inherited identity. It's a created identity for every one of us. But this is where, Mark, especially, it gets real close to home. Jumping into Reformed theology can be a subtraction story, especially if you come out of a kind of revivalistic Southern Baptist background, like a lot of the people who I've written about. That's why a lot of the people who come from that background don't necessarily stay in Reformed theology. I had a friend say, yeah, all these people came in and they were all Reformed coming out of these revivalistic Baptist backgrounds, but then we got around a bunch of other Reformed people, then they became Anglican, because then that was the difference, to try to mature beyond others. Huh. So that's why we, we have one of the, the chapters in this book also talks about liturgy itself can become a subtraction story as we transcend those, the immaturity of our youth and differentiate ourselves as self. That's really interesting. As you know, working at CT, a lot of people subscribe to CT because they're trying to differentiate, differentiate themselves from their fundamentalist background. Yeah, yeah. And the neo-evangelical movement. There is a very strong sense of that among many of our subscribers, and actually a lot of our editors. Uh, they're just pushing back against that and trying to establish their own, their, a different 
sense of what it means to be an evangelical Christian. Yeah, and a lot of feedback we get when people are unhappy with us is related to, why are you being what I perceive as fundamentalist? Is because I'm nervous about that, and I was trying to differentiate. Yeah. And I want to see yeah. you represent yeah, this, yeah, yeah. this differentiation that I'm, that I'm talking about. It's interesting that you tie that so much to identity and the self and developing an account of the self that you can kind of stand on as a person and say, like, no, this is this is me, and this is what's important, and this is how I find value, and I'm going to go find it in these different ways. Because I think I've definitely seen that happen, even in myself growing up, you know, in this day and age when that's sort of the major push, and how unpopular and difficult it is to get somebody to submit to an authority outside of yourself. Um, and the idea of submission at all is a sort of a dirty word. But nevertheless, that's what the gospel requires of us is to submit to authority outside of ourselves and allow that to change us and define us. And I think the most countercultural message we have now, but I think at the same time, the most compelling message that we have right now is one that is so consistent from Jesus. When you lose your life for my sake and the gospel, then you will find it. Wow. That is something deeply countercultural to the age of authenticity looking in ourselves to find the meaning that is hidden within us, you know, a, a, apart from all authorities. But then it doesn't work because it requires an external affirmation from everybody else. It's not just an individual pursuit. It requires everybody else to affirm you. And then what do you have when you have a society of everybody looking inside, doing what's right in their own eyes, requiring everybody else to affirm their own, their own journeys? Oh, you get chaos. You get a lot of what we have. <laughs> today, and yet Jesus calls us to an entirely different approach. You will find your life when you lose it for my sake and for the Gospels. And it's really this work from Taylor that's given me the eyes to see this for myself um, and the challenge that it poses to my own consumeristic, self-involved identity, and to really call me out to obedience to Christ to say, you know, Jesus is pretty clear. If you love me, you do my commands. You obey my commands. All right. Okay. (laughs) That's what it means to be a Christian, then. Amen. Let's get on with it. I'm just curious if you happen to know if... So Charles Taylor's still living. He's in his 80s at this point, um, mid to late 80s. He's retired from academic life, and I don't know how often he steps out and goes around to conferences and what have you doing the academic thing. But do you know if he's aware of his popularity in conservative Christian circles? <laughs> it probably surprised him a little bit. Uh, I'm not aware. We did try to reach out to him for this book. We would have loved to have a response from him in the end, even if it had been fairly critical and perhaps even opaque, uh, we would have <laughs> we would have been happy to yep. to include that in there, especially because of some of the significant critiques from Horton and Truman in particular. But they they are largely appreciative. The entire volume is very appreciative. But we didn't. I just I just don't see much from him these days, and so I don't know how much is involved. But hey, if I had written this book ten years ago, I probably would have written quietly into that night as well. I don't know. Uh I don't know what else I'd have to say at that point. So (laughs) I was just looking to see what the most recent thing that the internet could tell me that Charles Taylor had been involved with. And it looks to me like around the time that uh, Wheaton literature professor Roger Lundeen passed away, Charles Taylor came for a conference dedicated to Lundeen and gave a message um, on political uses of religion, which was very interesting. Um, I didn't get a chance to hear that myself, and I wasn't able to find a copy of it. But that was the last thing I could find. But it has been a while. It's been at least three, four years. Um, So he's probably winding down. 
Well, I'm hoping his social imaginary retirement is a golf course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. uh-huh. I think that's your social Oh, imaginary that's right. Part. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. That's a good segue. Unfortunately, I do want to ask one more question about Taylor, which is, uh, Colin, yeah. um, if listeners are interested in getting um, more on Taylor without necessarily making the full plunge, um, what are some other resources you could recommend? Yeah. So in addition to our book, Our Secular Age, which has got um, a number of different contributors covering different topics there, I just a, a quick plug on that one. Um, good friend and former colleague John Stark writes about preaching in that book. I love what he says there. He says, we think the problem in our culture is hostility toward the gospel, toward our preaching. The actual challenge is indifference to it. That is a Taylor insight right there. When you understand we spend all our time talking about the opposition we face, when the real fact is that we preach this world-transforming gospel of Jesus risen from the dead, ascended into heaven, interceding on our behalf before the, before the Father, sitting at his right hand, and people say, so what? That's a, that's a Taylor insight right there. So, yeah, I work with uh, a youth group, and that's the, that's the struggle. Uh, even with these kids that grew up in the church is like, you know, you sit down and you talk about scripture or somebody gives a really good sermon or you have a really powerful experience on a mission trip and you get these blank stares. You get this like, oh, OK. Wow. Yeah, I mean, what does that compare to having anything you could have ever wanted at your fingertips? Literally, I mean, on your phone. I mean, that that's the difficulty that we're facing there. Um, again, we could that maybe that's a different podcast, but we have um Making Sense of God from Tim Keller from 2016, I mentioned, uh, also is a good introduction, not only to Taylor, but the whole constellation of other contributors, McIntyre, Philip Reef, Robert Bella, a number of the other uh, folks, sociologists who've contributed to this, this work. Um, at the Gospel Coalition, we've done a number of different videos specifically on these topics. I've moderated some discussions between Russell Moore and Tim Keller on those, and then we're uh, going to be doing a panel with Brett McCracken and Tim Keller and with Jen Pollock-Michelle at the Gospel Coalition 2019 National Conference on these things in Indianapolis, April 1 to 3. So those are a few of the areas. I mentioned, of course, also Smith there as most people's introduction to him. But um, just grateful, grateful to see it. it's a small group of people who are engaging on these issues, but I am so grateful for a chance to talk about them because I think they touch every single one of us. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you so much for joining us and helping us become more familiar with Charles Taylor, what he thinks, and why uh, so many Christians can't seem to get enough of him. Also, a reminder to our listeners, you can give us feedback about this episode or past episodes of Quick to Listen by emailing podcasts at ChristianityToday.com or tweet at us at CT Podcasts. So now it is time for our precious moments segment. I'm going to have to ask Morgan someday why she named it that, because I can't get out of the precious moments doll imagery. Exactly. But uh, the <laughs> this is the part of the show where we talk about something that brought us joy. I the think past it's supposed week. to be ironic. I think so, because those precious <laughs> moments dolls do not bring me joy in any way. But uh, and I'm sorry, Morgan, for bashing your title. I don't actually mean it. Uh, but in any event, uh, Mark, what's something that's been making you smile this week? Well, the thought of my wife returning to me. She, uh, we, As I mentioned on a uh, previous podcast, we went down to hold, actually, my fifth grandchild. And so hey, I, I, I stayed for the weekend, and my wife stayed a, a little longer, and she's coming back today. And, of course, there's nothing like helping you appreciate your spouse than when she's not around and you realize... You have to do all the things you normally do as the husband, but then you also have to do all the things she normally does as a wife, and you realize 
wow, she actually does most of the work in this house. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm really glad she's returning. Great. Yeah. And uh, where can uh, listeners find more from you? Uh, Yes. I publish something called The Galley Report. It's a weekly newsletter in which I uh, link to articles and comment on them. And you can subscribe to that by going to christianitytoday.com slash the galley report. That's G-A-L-L-I report. Great. And how about you, Colin? Precious moment. I am thankful my wife and I and our two little kids, three years old and six months old, successfully made it to and back from Indianapolis in the last week, which from Birmingham, Alabama, is about a seven-hour trip with kids, Mm. 10. But uh, we were there for the Gospel Coalition Women's Conference, about 8,000 women there. I was very grateful for that chance. That's my favorite event that I get to go to because the people there are so appreciative of this, of this opportunity. And so just being able to sing and to learn and to talk and to eat and just to enjoy that time with, uh, with, with those folks was, was a, a blessing from God. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, where can we find you? Yeah, thegospelcoalition.org, Twitter, um, handle Colin Hansen. Yeah, eager to interact with folks. Yeah, and I'd encourage people to check out the Gospel Coalition website. I'll tell you how good it is. They often have articles there, I think, darn, we should have had that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> That's a compliment. And I also, they were, we're, we're patting each other on the back now. I just renewed my three-year subscription to CT. So hey. everybody go do the same thing. There you go. So. Orderct.com slash quick to listen. Yeah, um, my precious moment, uh, I was mentioning the youth group and how sometimes it's hard to get the youth to care. But one thing they do care about is having fun. And so this past weekend, we went to Six Flags, Great America, which if you're going with a youth group, uh, it is a it is an experience. And so my precious moment, there were a number of really fun moments, you know, seeing kids get really excited about the roller coasters and what have you. But surviving the trip, I think, is probably the big one. Uh, on the way back, I was no one dying. ferrying uh, three junior high girls and one other leader in my car. And that was a harrowing experience. <laughs> um, but it also created a lot of funny moments. One of the girls hiccuped the whole car ride back. Oh, my gosh. Um, so it was, a, it was a trip. The joys of youth ministry. Oh, yeah. Always plenty of joy. Yeah, so thank you to everyone for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. This podcast is made possible by all of our listeners and subscribers. Thank you so much for your support. Morgan Lee will be back next week in the host chair with uh, major cultural events as we took a break and thought about big thoughts. Uh, You can find Quick to Listen on Apple Podcasts, where you can also rate this podcast. Please do so. We really appreciate the feedback, and thank you to all of those that do rate the podcast. Quick to Listen is produced by Richard Clark, Cray Allred, and Morgan Lee. I'm Caleb Lindgren, and thanks for listening. See you around, everybody. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.